everyone welcome back i am your host just one and this is another edition while you're sleeping the podcast don't forget to hit the subscribe button i'm on apple music podcast republic spotify catch me on all the platforms today's guest i've worked closely with for about 12 plus years when we first met i was doing imperium and he was one of the leaders of the parts game today he is the day-to-day the marketing and the force behind the biggest automotive gatherings in the world week fest ever been to week fest san jose rival sporting events ken how are you good how are you what's up everybody (laughs) kind of fucking weak ass shout out is that dude dude it's uh I'm tired. Yeah. Yeah. I, do you feel What's like up, everybody? <laughs> do you do you feel like days are just like go quicker during this time? You know what's funny is that you'd figure it because you're at home and you'd be sitting at home all day. There's actually a lot of things that you need to take care of. Well, at least for me, at home. And so, I feel like pre-lockdown or not not lockdown but like stay at home order the days you know there were days you know that i was busy but it didn't go as fast as how it is right now well what are some of like these things that you've gotten to in the past like you know a couple weeks I, i think it's just like for everybody like if if you look at it in a way where you can take this opportunity to refine, either refine yourself or, or take care of the things that you kind of put aside. You know, there's a lot of, you know, for work at least, there's a lot of things that we had to take care of internally in terms of kind of, you know, putting everything into a smooth operation and then just putting our time into solving some of the issues that, that we've had, but we've put aside for a long time, you know, like for example, like the website, or it might be something with productivity and stuff like that. So we, we've done some of that stuff on the side, but then, you know, on a personal note, like, you know, just like doing everything around the house or, you know, maybe like, you know, me and you were talking about like even some of the shoes that were sitting in the closet that were yeah. like, just, you know, you were never going to wear them. And then, you know, just selling them online, you know, just for the hell of it. Because right now you do have the time, right? You do mm-hmm. have the time to do whatever you need to do or things that you've said that you wanted to do, but you've forgotten about it. This is, there's for a lot of people right now, there's no excuse to do the things that you've always, you know, set aside to. So <clears throat> there's that. And then, you know, just like, reading references, reading books, kind of, you know, educating myself in whatever I I feel like I need. I think that's important too. And right now I'm getting that time to do that. So. Yeah, it's really like a blessing and a curse. I I actually have been able to read a couple of good things, Mm -hmm. but at the same time I get lost in these COVID-19. Oh yeah alley you're not supposed to be i mean like for me personally when i mean everybody needs that information right to to stay updated to 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 know what's going on in the world to protect themselves and things like that but there are a lot of times too that you know the way the way the media words it 
it's like it's almost like they want to put fear in your head just so then you can read about the things that they write my thing though is that there were a lot of like you know like on social media just people complaining or you know being mad about everything and mm-hmm. i just i mean personally for me i had to stop looking like i yeah, mean, yeah. Like I completely stopped looking at Facebook because you know every every day you just open your page and everybody's just complaining. Yeah. And you know, going back to using this time to kind of improve yourself, it, it was more just bickering every day. And and I have to, like for me, the way I work is that you know I like to be in an environment where everything is neat and clean, you know, and where I'm not hearing all these negatives because it doesn't help me. So. You know, I just had to try to stay away from that. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I'm like in a deep, I've been trying to meditate more. Yeah. In the morning, things like that. Yeah. I mean, even for me, like walking the dog, but like taking longer walks, kind of just isolating myself, even in the public when we were walking, you know, and taking the time to just, you know, think about everything. You know, and, and like a lot of people say, it, it's not staying at home and, and doing this right now is not as bad as what previous generations or, or people from other societies have had it. So, no, to, yeah, like to me, like, yeah, it's sad. It sucks, you know, and there is a certain unknown. But think about the people that have been through wars and have families separated and things like that, like, you know. Asking you to stay at home, that's nothing. And, you know, from a business standpoint, yeah, I mean, like, we're not making any money as we're sitting still, you know, technically. But, you know, at the end of the day, things will be all right. And it's just up to you to try to adjust to the new norm. And we're not really spending like crazy either. You know, yeah. like I just paid like my Amex the other day and it was like the lowest it's ever been. Yeah. And and you know what? That That's true, too, because you staying at home and, you know, like I understand that there are some necessities you got to buy to kind of keep things moving at home. You know, like I was trying to find like gym equipment for the longest time. But other than that, it's just really like groceries, right? Or yeah. your normal subscriptions. But in comparison to like if you were going out, you you would go out to eat every day or you would, you know, even the littlest things like paying for a, an Uber and things like that, like those, those things add up. So okay. yeah, like staying at home, there, there is an advantage to everything. It's just, you know, and, and you know, a lot of people just got to take that and, and understand that there, there's, a, there has, has to be a balance between everything instead of just like complaining, you know? Yeah sure i mean are you getting antsy or are you like can you do another month like where where are you at like mentally mentally i think i'm in between i i do want to go out i'll be very honest like i want to i want to do the things that you know i normally do on a daily basis even when i go to the grocery stores sometimes you know i just feel kind of sad because like you know you see things running out of stock or you see them have these uh, boxes on the floor saying, you know, keep a distance when you line up at the cashier. Those things are, you know, a little bit depressing. So for me, 
that does take a little bit of a toll. And, and like we, we've said in our you know, personal group chats with other friends, I just want to start traveling again because you, know, you, you never realize how good you have it until, until it gets taken away from you. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's the case for a lot of people out here. Mm-hmm. But again, it's, how, it's about how we can adjust and adapt to the new norm or you know, maybe the way we were doing things before wasn't really the right thing to do. Right. And that's what got us here. So we have to learn to evolve and uh, adapt. But yeah, I mean, I I would say I'm in between in in terms of like mentally just staying at home most of the time. I work from home regardless, but, you know, it's good to have options, right? It's good to know that you have the freedom to exercise whatever needs you have. And right now, you know, we are restricted to a lot of things. So I can probably do another month, but hopefully, you know, things get better and some of the the stay-at-home orders will slowly get lifted within May is my hope. But my biggest thing is sports. Yeah, right. Like... You know, to me, it's like, you know, we we just watched the, the last dance by the Bulls on ESPN two days ago. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that they were doing a, a post-show coverage on ESPN, like, you know, it was like a replay of a game. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it was like an analyst. And they were, yeah, like Scott Van Pelt was talking, <laughs> like, like, there was like a rewind of highlights. And, know. you know, it's just weird, you know, like. We have come to the point where we are analyzing what we just watched. Yeah, and then like fucking the House of Highlights guy is Uh getting paid just to put like viral sports videos of kids hitting baseballs. Yeah, I mean, like, and and that's the thing too, right? Like, even when ESPN was doing the whole like 2K live tournament played by the NBA players, like I told you guys, I was like, I I can't watch a professional basketball player play a video game of something that they're good at in real life, but not, you yeah. know, in a video game. That you is what, weird to me. You know, what's really weird though. And I mean, I get it too, is that they're saying statistically that maybe one fourth of the NBA probably mm-hmm. lives check to check. That's crazy. But you know what it is? It's, you know, cash money, right? That's really what it is. So <laughs> like, and, and that's the struggle I feel like for a lot of people is that you have, you know, hard cash in front of your face. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? Right. You know, I'm, I'm almost assuming that rookies that before they get their contract or before they get their second contract, they, they get some type of loan or a credit line with somebody or with their agency. And you got to pay that back. Hopefully so it's, it's not a uh, big ed from Michigan or something. <laughs> yeah, so it's like an endless, you know, an endless reach to get to a, a place where you're financially comfortable. And and it is crazy because, you know, you think about how they have millions of dollars uh, in checks and yet they're still living paycheck to paycheck. But, you know, a lot of it too is not living within your means and 
you know, just kind of banking on the fact that you will get that next paycheck whenever, you know, it becomes available. Yeah. For like hometowns, like if you're like living in New York mm-hmm. or if you're living in like a super dense area, you're probably in an apartment. So right. it's tough for you to like really just get out there and kind of like, you know, work on the, your game. So like, mm-hmm probably a lot of these players are, aren't even in shape too. Yeah. I heard that Jimmy Butler from the heat sent all of his teammates basketball hoops. If they didn't have one already. That's pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, there again, this like, this is right now, this is what we have to understand and accept. And so it's going to take adjustments, but you know, it's just what it is. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, let's switch gears a little bit. I mean, I want to talk to you about, mm-hmm. you know, like the origin story of Ken Lee. Right. Um, I went on the internet and there was like one interview from 2014 or 2004, I think. Damn, you did your research. That sounded so bland of fucking just like Ken Lee putting the fucking state the press release statement oh yeah it was definitely pr (laughs) (laughs) it was just like hyping up the show and like us at weak sauce we do the most and make sure that your rims will get to you as soon as possible in a timely manner so yeah i mean let's start from the beginning like you know where did you grow up so i've i've been around basically so i I was born in Hong Kong. I lived there for a few years. And then my mom had took us to Vancouver, Canada. So we migrated to Canada when I was really young. But most of my relatives lived in the Bay. So during that time, I would, whenever I had winter breaks or summer breaks, I would actually, my mom would actually um, take me down to the bay just to kill some time right and then so I, I would stay with my relatives so during school i i i lived in vancouver summertime lived in union city yeah so what, what was like some of the, the like you know things growing up in vancouver because you know most of like everybody's in the u.s that's listening to this but is there like a lot of like differences from yeah like, when you're seeing I think so. Like, well, when when you when I lived in Vancouver, it was a suburb that we lived in, but we had close access to everything. So imagine like living in San Francisco, right? So you have your your pockets of neighborhoods, but everything is either within walking distance, or you know you can take public transportation to most places. Whereas, like, for example, if you lived in like Union City or Fremont which is like the suburbs, it's hard to get to places without a car, right? Walking is is too much of a hassle. Everything is kind of far in between. So definitely had a lot of access to everything in Vancouver. It's almost like if you lived in dead smack in the middle of Manhattan, you know, you can walk out and you can, as a kid, you had a lot of resources, you know, and during during my time there, 
me and my friends, we would just go out and we would see a lot of different things and be a lot of different places. Whereas when I finally had moved from Canada to, to Union City, to the Bay, I felt like everything was just so far in between. And it was just like, I was hanging out with friends, but we were mostly doing really basic things like, you know, hanging out at the house or like, you know, going to, to just grab like Denny's or something, you know, like, you know, stuff like that. Right. Like yeah. suburbia. Life. Yeah. There's not, there's no, there's no real life. Whereas like in Vancouver, you know, at the age of like 14, 15, we would be going out, you know, to like real restaurants and like, we would go out to hang out at different places. Like, we would like me and my friends would go watch an NBA game together, you know, and we would, you know, like, and it's, it's easy access and, you know, and then it's just that as I grew, as I grew up, I realized that Vancouver is a real, is actually a really nice city. It's a beautiful city. And sometimes, you know, it kind of took it for granted, but yeah, moved, moved from Vancouver to Union City in high school. And then, the later years, I moved to uh, San Jose. Well, hold on. Did, did you? Let's back, let me back you up, though. Did mm-hmm. you want to leave Vancouver? You know, at the time, I didn't. It, it's like any other kid, right? Like you, you yeah. take, you take everything that you've ever known in your life, and you, and your parents kind of take that away from you, right? Take take your friends out, and then like take all of your your network out. No kid wants that ever because you know you're gonna have i i had the time where like you know i i adapted i moved and then it was like the first day of school in the states i didn't know anybody yeah you know like even like because we moved we moved during that summer before school started so straight to logan or what yeah i went straight to logan but during the summertime like you know what was i gonna do right and then and then first day of school is like, I don't have any friends. Like you're, you're basically, you have to, you know, reconstruct yourself to a whole new crowd, to a different culture, to, you know, different types of people. And so, that's hard for a kid. Oh, totally. Especially, yeah. you know, just getting adapted and everybody's just wanting to know your story and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, What was some of the things that you were into you know, like as a kid, before you came to Union City, like, you know, like, did you have like hobbies or were you into like, you know, rock music? No, I mean, like the the, the first and foremost thing I think is, is basketball. I've played basketball since I was five. So growing up, that was always, you know, a part of my DNA. You know, the days in Vancouver... I was fairly heavily involved in basketball programs, you know, inside and outside of school. So that was definitely something that, you know, kind of me and my peers had in common, you know, and, and then just like as a kid growing up, you know, we were listening to a lot of music, a lot of hip hop, a lot of R&B. So that was our, our common connection. But then, it, you know, once I moved, I have to basically reconnect and find all those new um, connections again within the people that I'm surrounded by. So that was tough because like, you know, it's hard for like, imagine like a 15 year old kid, like, you know, at school during lunch be like, you wouldn't 
he wouldn't walk up to a whole bunch of strangers <laughs> and be like, "Hey, do you like hip hop? Do you like rap?" Like, that's lame as fuck, you know? Yeah. So that's <laughs> tough, man. You couldn't even like really like be on your phone and yeah, I'm t- and that was the other thing I was gonna say. It's like there's no <laughs> phones, bro. Like, what are you gonna do? Just fucking sit there all day? And, yeah, and that's so- how it was. You know? <laughs> So like how did how did you like start making these connections? I mean, I'm sure it was like slowly, right? Yeah, I mean, it was slowly, but luckily like you know, some of the friends that I did meet very early on, like I think school started and and that was the difference too like in Vancouver, school started in September. But in the states, school started like middle of August. And so like I was like in the sitting there in the middle of summer and be like, "What the fuck school is starting already on April like on August 15th?" It was crazy. So, but the good thing is, I, I would say within like a week and a half, two weeks, I, I found a staple of friends. And I found them through sitting in class. And, you know, it, it didn't take long, but they ended up, you know, being my friends, being my close friends all throughout high school uh, till the very end. Awesome. Well, we're glad you made friends during high school. <laughs> I mean, that's tough, though. Like, I have a cousin who yeah. probably went to, like, 20 different schools, not by yeah. choice, but because, you know, parents were in the military. Yeah. Like, I mean, he was always that kid that was just, like, left the fuck out. Yeah. I mean, like, even the transition, like, even during Vancouver, we were moving to different neighborhoods. So I went to... At least like elementary, middle school, high school, right? So I went to at least like five, six schools in Vancouver. And then obviously, plus moving to the States to Logan. So it's like six or seven schools. So there's been, you know, and there's been times where I have to adapt to a new set of friends, a new set of environment, you know, multiple times. So, but I think, I think though, with that experience, it kind of, help pave the way to how I am today because I feel like I can definitely easily adopt into a situation um, and accept the facts without really worrying about it too much. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's a great skill. It's just being able to like be in new environments, you mm-hmm. know, because like I think for, for living in, you know the east bay area it's fairly small where everybody pretty much knows each other mm-hmm. so there's just you know endless amounts of cliques that have known each other since like the first grade mm-hmm. so i mean yeah yeah that's crazy because like i i've like you know as a kid i always wished like oh man i wish i had the same set of friends you know from you know elementary school to high school that would be great but it's you know now that I think about it, it wasn't that bad because it just taught me how to to quickly adapt to a situation. It gave me the opportunity to see different things from different cultures, you know, moving from Asia where where it's a totally different type of setting than Western countries to moving to one country and then finally to the states and as a kid, you absorb a lot of things that you might not realize at the time but as you get older, you realize that those are valuable lessons that, that have been instilled in you in your life. Oh, completely, 100%. I mean, we can get into it later, but, you know, mm-hmm. 
just the eye-opening trips that we've had. But, oh, yeah. uh, I mean, so after high school, you know, what, what was, like, the plan once you got out? You know, after <laughs> I was, well, at, at the very end of high school, I didn't go to class, I'll be honest. I basically, the education system in Canada had things set up a little differently. So when I finally transferred to the States, I had a lot of school credits. So second half of senior year, I didn't go to school at all because I was like, I was ready to graduate. So the funny thing is the the principal called me into his office saying, you know, why aren't you going to school? And, you know, I had a reason. So I, I said, well, I have enough credits. Why am I going to waste my time sitting in class at the time to me doing nothing, right? Not not really learning anything. So he said, okay, just get, go go find a job and, and put we'll put you on a work program. So it's still like, you know, you're still taking a course or you're still being a part of the school. So I did that. And at the time, and this was my very first job, I started working at Target. And so senior year, I worked at Target. And once I graduated, I was still working there. But at the age of 17 and a half, I was already one of the managers at the store at Target. So because of that, I felt like, you know, I can probably, you know, you were young, so you don't really know much. But I was thinking, well, I can still, if I'm, if I can earn money, right, um, doing this job, then I can probably put school on hold for a little bit, just so then I can earn a little bit of extra cash on my own. So I did that for for about a year after I graduated, but then I was pressured. You know, obviously by, by my mom and by my relatives saying, you know, you need to go to school. <clears throat> and that's what everybody did, right? So, you know, you, you, as, as a young kid, you kind of think, well, you know, there, there is that uh, pressure to kind of play the role and do something that your parents might approve of. So I went to school. But, you know, Hold to be on. honest, let me back you up though real quick. Like, you know, so you're working and uh -huh. then you're working full time, I'm assuming. Or are you working? Oh, I'm working full time. Like I was senior <laughs> in high school working 40 hours, hours a week. week. Yeah, <laughs> I was working 40 hours a week, but I didn't okay. mind it. Right. So you're working, but like, you know, you got a little bread now. Like, yeah. What are you doing with this money? So that's where that's where the car thing started. My mom bought me a car when I was 16, 16 and a half. It was a 92 Honda Prelude. I got that. So that's when I started, you know, like buying little shit for the car. And then obviously like buying shoes, buying clothes, you know, like all, all the shit like a teenager would do at the time. And that was really it. So, but, but that's where the car thing started was when I had a job and I had a car and I started, I was able to, you know, put my hands on it and then do the things that I wanted to do to it. Uh, were you working on cars, like, uh, as a hobby? Or yeah. you're kind of just, like, buying stuff for the car to, like, dress it up? It was a little bit of both because um, 
the, the circle of friends that I was with in high school, they were all into cars. They were into cars, they were into the same music that I was listening to, the same type of fashion and everything. So it was a little bit of both, you know, like, I, so even after graduating, we, we were still like fixing up, up cars together. And so that's how it all started. But went to college for a little bit and it just didn't work out because I, I don't know, like for me, I, I was just, my mind was constantly thinking, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm sitting in this classroom and I don't feel like I am really benefiting from what I'm learning, why don't you just use my time to uh, work or to try to advance my career some other way? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I did that. And I mean, thinking thinking back about it now, you know, I understand that a lot of self-starters in business didn't finish college and, you know, that's great. But at the same time, you know, school is important, as lame as it fucking sounds. But, you know, it just depends on the type of purpose you're after, I would say. Yeah, because, you know, most self-starters are kind of like, I wouldn't say they're like pigeonholed into one lane. But Mm -hmm. did you see yourself as, you know, like this college student who's kind of disenchanted by what a professor was telling you that you were going to end up doing what you do? Or were you studying things that probably didn't apply to you and that's why it didn't work? Yeah, I mean, it. I was definitely studying things that didn't apply to me. Like, you know, for example, like, for example, like calculus or like trigonometry. You know, I'm sitting in class thinking, when am I ever going to use this, right? I'd rather you teach me like valuable like lessons in life and teaching me a math math equation you know what i mean and mm-hmm. so it did not apply to me so I, I think in a sense i was trying to look at it like this is not very efficient right and so i look at it like you know i can probably try to gain work and life experience and hopefully find a career that's suited for me but sitting in class like this and listening to a professor talk about things that I would never have interest in learning or understanding, it just, it doesn't work. So it's funny because during that school semester, I ended up finding my first job that was related to the car industry. And that's how kind of everything started. And which, which job was that? So I remember very specifically one of my friends needed like an accessory and he had to pick it up in Livermore. So for those who don't know, Livermore, in comparison to where we lived at in in Union City, that's what, about like 30 miles, right? Like 30 miles, right? Yeah, 30 to 40. Yeah, like so it's it's still a pretty like long way to go. So he's like, oh, just come with me because I need a buddy to just, you know, ride up there with. I'm like, all right. So I go up there with him, get to Livermore, get to this shop, and they were hiring. And, and there was this shop that sells aftermarket accessories, you know, wheels and things like that. And, you know, it was a pretty decent looking shop. 
They had an install bay. So they did like everything. They, they installed stuff. They sold stuff, you know, in person and online. This was, you know, back in 2004. So selling stuff online, you know, it, it was, you know, popping off. It was doing well. So <clears throat> they were hiring. So I just applied for Shiz and Giggles just for fun because I didn't have any experience in, in that field per se in terms of e-commerce, in terms of a lot of like, uh, internal operations and things like that. I had no prior experience, but you know, luckily, the manager there they he gave me a chance, and I was hired. And and that's how the the knowledge and the experience started. It was from there. So you're working in Livermore selling parts at this point. Mm-hmm. Selling parts. I would commute there every day, which was I mean, which for <laughs> for you guys, like that's a tough commute. Like I was doing like an hour and a half each way. What what time are you going to work to? I'm going to work at seven a.m. because we You're have to. Shit. Right, because we have to, you know, cater to the East Coast time. So customers in the East Coast would call during their lunch, which is about what twelve p.m. And yeah, that so would be nine. yeah. So yeah, nine nine a.m. for us. So I was leaving seven a.m. commuting, hour hour and a half to Livermore every day and then coming home six o'clock dead smack into traffic. So it, it was tough. Like, you know, just, just that commute, you know, you, you spending two, three hours a day um, doing that, that was tough, but it gave me a window. So I said, you know what? I have this opportunity. I'm just going to take it. Like, I don't want to worry too much about the simple, the littlest obstacles, right. That you can kind of live with or solve. Mm-hmm. you know and i didn't want that to be a determining factor of why i wouldn't take a chance because somebody took a chance on me right so right. you know i i have to do what's right and if i want to get ahead of the people that are around the same age as me or in the same around the same situation as me i've got to you know, no pun intended, go the extra mile to get him. <laughs> so, I mean? so you're pretty much like the plug at this point? Starting to be, because we were doing a lot of e-commerce. Like we were doing like, at the time, like seven to eight million annually in e- like in online sales in and 2004. Is this, is this like a mom and pop? There's uh, a mom and pop. Yeah, it was it was a mom and pop, but you know the the idea of selling automotive parts online was still fairly new, right? You know, so through that though, I learned how to, you know, figure out how wholesale works, how pricing works, you know, just the inner dynamics of running a business. So, but I, I wouldn't think that doing that would become what I have today because at the time it was just for fun right because at the time it was like oh you know this is my hobby this is what I like so it would be great if I can work for a spot that's you know connected to my hobby but you know I was learning a lot of things that I that I kind of valued you know even till now so how how long did you work there for I worked there for a good three four years 
We did a lot of race events. <clears throat> I helped them develop an entire new sub-brand that they were looking into doing that offered products for more race cars. Instead of just like dress-up accessories, it was more technical. It was more engineered items that catered to a lot of race cars and race teams. So I did that for a while. And that was basically the very first taste I got into brand development and marketing. I mean, I didn't know what to do at the time, but it was more just, you know, learning as you go and just making mistakes and, and adjusting course. So as you're, you know, getting some experience, starting mm -hmm. to learn new parts of the business, you know, marketing, brand development and stuff, why did you leave there? Because it sounds like I, you're a No, it was, it was great for a minute. But then I was, I became, because it was a mom and pop, I became like the jack of the trade. Like I was doing everything, like down to the point where I was doing a little bit of accounting and we used to have an accountant. Mm. So I was like, hold up, like you guys are going to fucking fire everybody and just keep one or two because you want to save costs because this one person can do everything and you're not... Obviously, me being 18, 19 years old, it, you can easily you know, take advantage of a situation totally. if you're a superior. And for me, it was like, you know, this is too much. Like, I feel like I'm making, I feel like I'm more valuable to the company than the owners, basically. So I just, you know, one day I just said, you know what, fuck this. I'm not going to do this anymore. As, as fun as it sounds, a lot of, you know, running a business at that point, for somebody else, it, it was tough. It was a lot of it was a lot of work. It was a lot of just accepting the rules and and accepting the fact that somebody is a superior to you, <clears throat> and there's nothing you can change. Even if you want to improve the brand, they have the final say, and your voice just becomes almost invisible because you're just this horse that is told. And it's supposed to do everything that they ask you to do. So I wasn't happy at the end. And I just said, you know, like one day I walked in, I was like, you know what? Like, I remember this. I, I literally drove there <laughs> and I was just like thinking about him. Like, you know what? I, like, I'm so upset about everything. And it just boils over. I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. There ain't nothing they can say to me to keep this job. So, you know, I got there 8.30 a.m., walked into the boss's office, and I was like, you know what, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm just done, right? And it's like, it's, and, and the classic question when it comes to that from a superior is, you know, like, is it the money? We can give you more money and things like that. Yeah. But I mean, like, at, even at that age, I, I quickly learned that it wasn't about just the money. You know, like, it, it's really true. Like, money can't buy you happiness. You know, like, you can... Pay me more, but I'm still going to have to, you know, deal with your shit and have to do everything without any help or resources. That doesn't help me mentally. It doesn't, you know, I'm not happy when I go home. Like, so, yeah, money, you know, earning a lot of money is great, but you can't put a price tag on certain things. And so they offer me more money, but I say, you know what, I can't. I'm just going to have to leave. I don't need that type of stress at an age where I should be able to experience a lot of different things with the freedom 
and without having to worry too much about <clears throat> the consequences or responsibilities that I have. So I left. Wow. And then, so after leaving, that leads you to weak sauce or, or where did No, I had a lot of different odd end jobs. I, for a year and a half after that, I worked at a dealership in Fremont at BMW. And at the time I was doing like parts sales. So I was a parts associate, but it was like, you know, like it was like factory OEM stuff. So it wasn't all that interesting, but it was a job. And at least it was in a field where I felt comfortable with, right? It was automotive. So I did that for a while. I went mom and pop and then corporate again. Yeah, corporate. But then I left that job because I was basically promised, I was literally promised a, a position and a raise in a salary by my boss right and when the day came to do so a new hire came in and took that position mm. and that then that my boss never said anything about it to me it's almost like it's almost like a like almost not the same but like the only situation i can think of is like <laughs> you know if an athlete from a team says you know like or if an owner of a team says you're not going to get traded and all of a sudden, you just get traded. Yeah. Without them consulting you. Or just yeah. doing things behind your back, right? So my boss never said a thing to me. It, it took the new hire to come up to me and say, hey, I know this was supposed to be your spot. You know, my bad. You know, <laughs> I didn't want it to be like that. I'm like, no, it's, it's not your fault. Like, you yeah. had nothing to do with it. Like, you didn't know what was happening internally in a department. You were a new hire. So, you know, it's not even, it's not even on you. What was the it's position? On, it was just like a, like a senior manager position for parts. And I've been, you know, like I've been doing my job. Like I've, I've been diligently doing everything. I've never had any run-ins with my superiors and things like that. I did everything on time early. You know, like we, we used to start <clears throat> that, that job that I was at. We used to start at 7 a.m. So that, that's early. But yeah. The benefit of that was we can get off at 4 p.m., right? But I will finish my job at like 1 p.m. And so I was doing things like I, I would finish my job, my part, like my end of the deal. And I would do everything else that the department needed. That wasn't my responsibility. But I figured, you know, you know, we're all in this as a group. So if I need to do it, I need to do it. No yeah. big deal. So I, I felt like I showed my superiors my willingness to to be a part of the team. And and I would admit that the new hire had more experience, but you could have at least told me, you know, face to face. Like, you know, how, how awkward do you think it was like every day coming into work and just not talking about it and have this you know, <laughs> big elephant in the room? That you were never going to answer like that. That's a horrible thing to do as, as a as a manager. Well, leadership, yeah. You yeah. Just, so gosh. you know, he just he just felt like, you know, it wasn't necessary to bring up. Like, you know, his action was was his answer, right? <laughs> the new the new hire was was the answer, and I was like, all right, well, fuck this then. So, 
you know, a- after after that whole ordeal, like I gave it about like a month or two, and then I left because you know I I, I couldn't do it anymore. The funny thing though is that very same manager, and I, I've never even told you this. The very same manager that screwed me over like that ended up working at Mercedes in San Jose. And this was a few years ago when I was still living up there. I took my car, the car that I have right now, to go mm-hmm. surface at that dealership. And he was, the mother, he was the same motherfucker that wrote me up on my service. So he, he, he took care of my car, but he didn't remember who I was. Crazy it's how just, the world works. Yeah, it's just ironic that way. Did you say something to him? Like, hey. No, I, I wanted him to figure it out. But I was like, you know, I'm not the type to like put it in your face, right? right. You know me. Like, I, I, don't, I don't try to do any of that. Yeah. So, you know, like, if you figure it out, you figure it out. But, like, I, I think personal satisfaction was good enough for me. Nice. Right? Like, I, I didn't have, I don't have to tell the world. You know, like I don't have to shove in his face. You know, whatever. It's, it's been at that time. It's been what ten years already. Yeah, for sure. So you know, I'll I'll stay in my lane. You stay in yours. Well, he did stay in his lane. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so after after that, I ended up working for a bank. So I, I did that also for about a year, year and a half. That taught me you know, some of the, the financial aspects and that taught me a lot about trust because when you work at a bank and you work with people's money, all they care about is where their money's at. So that taught me a lot of just relationship building and just being able to convince this person to trust you as a reliable source for whatever you're handling in that situation. But <clears throat> during that time, I was approached by one of my friends to be a part of a business that he had just, he had opened for about a year. And that ultimately was Weak Sauce, the, the shop. So I went in there and started helping him out. Just, you know, as as a sales associate, um, applying to applying all the things that I had already learned from my first car job in Livermore. And, and what year is there? It? Let's see. 2006 or five, six. So, yeah. I mean, e-commerce for automotive is still booming. Yeah, it was still fairly, it, it was still doing fairly well at the or time. Or was he catching the latter of end of the trend? Yeah, like there wasn't a lot of different channels where you can sell on. Like, for example, there wasn't a lot of Amazon listings. There wasn't a lot of eBay. Even though there was, it wasn't It wasn't like overly saturated. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you needed a specific item from a specific brand, usually customers stared towards like an actual brick and mortar business instead of like, you know, um, an online only type of uh seller just because there's more trust like you know you if you if you're going to spend like four or five thousand dollars on on a set of wheels you want to talk to the guy Mm -hmm. that you know that offers that item right you don't want to just click buy now 
into the unknown. Because right. a lot of the times too, car parts are very tailored to a specific need or to a specific make and model. And so there's a lot of details involved. So we did well in that aspect in terms of selling higher price items, selling items that were well-engineered, things like that. Whereas like, you know, eBay was kind of like your online flea market of parts. Right. And it was and just so, like, so. So Weeksoft was more of a company that was brokering out the hot shit versus like, you know, getting, you know, a run-of-the-mill muffler. Or yeah, muffler. exactly. I mean, we didn't have a, a big warehouse. We were dropshipping items from like wholesale distributors to our customers. We kept some stock and it, it was, it was very, it was a, the first office was a very humble like space. It was maybe, shoot, it was probably maybe like, 400, 500 square feet at most. It was definitely smaller than your Imperium office. Oh, wow. It was tiny. Yeah, it was tiny. But it was the three of us. It was the two owners, and then it was me. I, I was just doing the stuff. like I was doing like entry-level stuff for them. Mm -hmm. I was taking calls. <clears throat> I was selling everything, You know, putting everything on website, pricing everything. That's where I began to create content for the shop, for the business, I would post items on every known message board and communicate with all the four members for everything that they needed in relation to the shop. Are you, that was my role. Are you working at the bank and doing this? Oh, no. I, I left the bank because, again, it was just trying to find my footing, like find my purpose, right? Yeah. And it's funny because... That first job in Livermore, I ended up working at, at another automotive-related company in BMW. So it always went back to automotive, right? <clears throat> so I left because, you know, like I, I wanted more control of what I can do and how I can contribute. Working at Weak Sauce gave me the freedom to try different things. It gave me the, you know, gave me the freedom to reach out customers in a different way. So I, I was there full time. Oh, dope. So the, the space that I, you know, would see at Ringwood would be like way later then. Oh yeah. We moved to that shop about a year, year and a half later. When I first started at the shop, I was commission based, but we were, doing pretty good for a small for a, for a very very small business i think that i think when i went in and i started selling we hit we hit the, the the million mark for the first time and so at the time the owner his name is adam he basically made me uh, a partner because of the performance that i had showed him so the, the spot in San Jose that you mentioned, that was after the growth and everything. And we were there for a good two, three years after that. So you became a partner within a year? Yeah, I became, <clears throat> became a partner within a year because when, when I had came in, they basically had an extra set of hands, right? To take phone calls, to 
tap into all these different opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have the time to do. So I became that point of contact. So through that, I was able to open up different markets, talk to more customers and, and bring in more sales through leads and things like that. So they went from, I know, don't, don't quote me on this, but went from maybe 100, 200,000 annually to a mil or two annually. So that's when Adam made me a managing partner. Nice. Yeah. So like now you're the managing partner and like you've kind of like started to build like a a better brand, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were definitely getting a lot of um, following. The following for our brand was starting to get pretty big, not only in the Bay, but because we were selling online, a lot of people domestically knew about us and we started to reach out to different countries too. We were selling like pallets of parts to countries in Europe, like the UK to <clears throat> Germany to even Russia. And wow. then we tapped into selling a lot of stuff in, to Japan, Japanese customers, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand. So we were, I mean, in, in our own way, in our very own humbling way, we were starting to tap into a global market. And a lot of people started recognizing us as a trusted source to go to for automotive parts. So <clears throat> we would end up taking distribution services for certain brands and carrying the brand with the aesthetics that I I preferred. And we did pretty well for, for a pretty long run. So, so you're stylizing an industry. Mm -hmm. You're starting to ship globally. Mm -hmm. How are you managing this growth of following that you have? Because this sounds pre-social media-ish. It is. Yeah, I mean, this is like very pre... I don't even think Facebook was around. Like, I mean, it was around, but not, not so like prevalent. Mm -hmm. So this was all about really like grassroots community. So what, what I mean by that is you're literally talking on the phone with somebody, calling them up and talking, <laughs> like yeah. seeing how they're doing, like just relationships, or you're seeing them in person or, you know, through the, the message boards and you're yeah, just this is very forum driven. Oh, too. it is. Yeah. And like you're going on like, you know, AOL messenger and talking to them every day. So like, this is really like, the start of like creating a digital community before the Instagram, before the Facebook or, or what have you. Yeah. So, so the hacking right now you're speaking of is really follow up mm -hmm. basis, right? Yeah. Like this is, there was a lot of work involved. Yeah. But at the time it was, it was normal to do so. So I don't think you think of it as a ton of work or unnecessary work in comparison to today's standards. So you know, for me, I enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed understanding that, hey, if I create this relationship, it's going to benefit our brand. And when I was made partner, that opened my eyes up a lot more. And I cared about everything and anything that had to do with 
the development of our company. So because I had that title, because I had that responsibility, I didn't mind it at all. And this is where people say, you know, you got to love what you do as your job. So it doesn't feel like a job. Mm -hmm. And at the time, like, it didn't feel like a job. It just felt like it was just something that I had a purpose in doing and I was going to see it through. And I was not going to make excuses because, you know, I'm in this title of being a partner. There's nobody to complain to. There's nobody that you can necessarily rely on. So you got to figure it out. So tough shit. If something happens, you know, find a way and resolve it. Or if you don't know any, if you don't know how to do a certain thing, figure it out, you know, find help or learn it on your own. And that's my, that was my approach. And I think that because of that attitude that I carried, we were lucky to, to see the efforts return in terms of having all these followers, having all these customers on our side and, and having that loyalty to the brand. Yeah, because you think weak sauce, mm-hmm. it's not a very fucking good name. Yep. And so, like, you're building this this following. Yeah. What were you guys doing to, like, you know, keep the following going? Or, like, were you guys, like, doing events? Or was there, was there like, a barbecue that you guys hosted? Well, I think, like, for me, always, like, the word weak sauce is basically a parody, right? So people took it as, as like, something comical. And I wanted to... Not that I wanted to change that image. I wanted to also make sure people took it seriously. Like, hey, this is a shop. This is what we do. We do business here, but we do the right business. We do the right things. We offer the right service here. So when you come, I, I want you to expect a certain level of professionalism and a certain level of uh, reputation when you, when you do business with us. So <clears throat> that being said, we continue to stay close to the community and kind of kind of community communicate with them through our branding our image our our overall willingness to open up to a lot of people so we did a lot of free events at the shop we would we would host you know meets and we would do you know small gatherings here and there, barbecues, like you said. But then we would do this thing where we would have like a very big meet annually, once a year in the summertime. And so at the time, it we basically ended up... I, I, I didn't expect this to happen, but we, we held a meet. And I was thinking, well, maybe like 50, 60 cars would show up. And our <laughs> office was, you know, like, you know, in, in a cul-de-sac. So, you know, there was plenty of space and I wasn't worried about it. You know, like, you know, you're just hosting a gathering, like a, a small intimate gathering. I had put <laughs> our flyer out to all the message boards saying, you know, we're hosting a meet, come, come by if you want. There will be free pizza and things like that. You know, just, you know, you, you don't really think about it much. It's like, okay, well, we're going to do this. It turned out that meet of 30 to 40 cars that I expected turned into seven streets of cars. 
and like thousands of people at the shop. Yeah. So that's when I learned my lesson that, okay, we need to be more organized into doing this thing. But luckily, like the cops didn't really trip at the time because, you know, we were behaving and everybody that came had kind of like kind of knew each other within our own circles. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just, you know, to us as, as a company, it was just surprising. Like, this is basically how many people know about you. This is basically how many people cares and believes in, in your branding and your system. And so to me, I think, I think as, a, as a whole group for the company, seeing that was already very rewarding in itself. Even though we didn't, like, we didn't earn a dollar at those meets, you know, like people would come into the shop and check out our space, but it wasn't necessarily our purpose to, you know, sell products on that day because there were a lot of people there. It was just really like a sense of um, connecting with the community and also, you know, letting the name out there and uh, promoting the business's name, really. So, and then that happened, that, that was around for two, three years. And it was like the infamous, like, weeks off summer meets. And that's when people would, like, drive down <clears throat> from Oregon just to go to this meet or, like, drive up from L.A. just to come to this, like, meet that we were having on a random Saturday in an afternoon. So, so that, yeah, that, that, that went on for a little bit. So did you feel like, you know, you have a lot of steam going. Were mm-hmm. you visualizing Weekfest from there or? Yeah, I mean, I, I, saw it, I saw an opportunity when there was a time where that car community in the Bay didn't have a lot of, one, organized events, two, an event that I felt like would really attach a certain niche niche market to the people and at the time there were different car shows but they were just like you know kind of like circusy yeah it wasn't it wasn't doing i mean i don't know like to me i try, i always try to think about it from a customer standpoint you know what what would what would i want to see if i walk into a car show for me, I wouldn't want to. I didn't want to see all the extra bullshit. I didn't want to see people doing push-ups and doing pull-ups for a T-shirt. You know, I don't. I didn't want to see like music performances and breakdance contests and all that bullshit. Like to me, it should just be about the cars, right? You come to a car show, it's about the fucking cars. It's not about somebody doing pull-ups for a T-shirt. So, you know, like and that plus. There were just a lot of like anybody could go into a like anybody can exhibit at a car show at the time. And I and I just thought about like, you know, these are not very impressive cars. Mm-hmm. Right? So like what's the value in me paying admission to come see the shitty car that I can see on the street? Yeah. You know, sure. it doesn't make any sense, right? It, it's like any other product. Like there's no value. So that's when I thought, you know, us doing these <clears throat> annual meets for so long, I, I feel like we have a pretty good standing with the community. 
And I think we are well into the position of being able to organize events in a way that these people that come to our meets will appreciate. So that's how that all started. And I know at the time it wasn't, it wasn't a business. It wasn't, you know, a full blown tour that you see now. It was just purely organic and it was, it was out of my desire and willingness to contribute to a community that's, that's been so good to me in all these years. Feeling a need. Right. I'm I'm feeling a need. And I mean, I, I just, to me, I just felt like, you know, as a, as a business, we had the financial resources and the ability to, to spread a message through our channels where a lot of people can understand where a lot of people can be exposed to. So we decided to do it. We decided to do WeekFest. And that was an adaption of <clears throat> Jay's Gathering that, that happened prior to WeekFest in the San Francisco, Japantown So Jay's Gathering structure. was somebody else's. And like yeah, it was somebody else's, and then I had I had approached one of the partners at that event because they were not doing well. The other partner at Jay's gathering was basically not present with his duties, and it does it didn't seem like it was going to happen anymore. It, it was basically falling off a tree. Mm-hmm. So I had went in and I said to this person, you know. Let us be a part of this. We'll manage it. We'll run it. We'll do everything that's needed because this person just didn't have the knowledge or the skills to do so. He was more of just the PR guy and a lot of the the actual operations of you know just running any type of organization. It required assistance. So I went in and talked to my partners and we created a request. So what was the first week fest then? The first official week fest. First official week fest, 2008, February. Where at? Japantown, San Francisco. Oh, so it was the one in the parking mm-hmm. structure. It, it was in the parking structure. Yeah, at the time though, like zero experience in event organizing. <laughs> but yeah. knowing that I like I like to think that I'm a pretty organized person to begin with. Mm-hmm. I just took that ability and applied it to to this new thing that we were doing. At the time again, it wasn't ran like a business. It was more of just, you know, this this gathering that we wanted to hold for the people. So the so gathering we is mm-hmm. like an extension to pretty much sell car parts at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it was it was to extend our name. It was to prange off our name to to more people. I mean, I didn't, I didn't at the time. I didn't think about it like, well, how are we going to convert these people that attended our events into actual sales to the shop? Mm-hmm. It was really merely like, and I know this sounds like this sounds really lame, but it's it was a passion project. Like I just wanted to do it because I felt like I could. You know, and I felt like we as a community and me personally as a car enthusiast, I knew we needed it. So if nobody's going to step up, I'm going to do so. And I'm going to take a risk because I felt like it was a, 
it was a risk willing to take in terms of just putting myself out there and making something that everybody can enjoy and everybody can be a part of. So I didn't go in thinking, well, what's going to be our ROI and, you know, how much money money are we going to make out of this? I just, at the end of the day, I wanted to make sure we we were even with our money. Like, you know, we didn't lose any money, but, you know, I just wanted people to come out. So to my surprise, that first year, like, you've seen the videos on YouTube where people were lining up, you know, to get in from the basement of the parking lot to the first ground floor up the hill all the way wrapping around that Japantown shopping mall. And so to me, that, that was enough for me. That convinced me that, hey, we did, a, we did the right thing and we ran with it. Um, for your first show, did you make money or? No, we, we basically broke even. We barely broke even. Because at the time, again, we weren't really thinking about profit margins, things like that. We just wanted to make sure that the car registration or the emission covered the things that we had to pay for out of pocket, right? So, for example, like the insurance, renting the facility, you know, all the operational tools that we needed. We just didn't want to lose out. So we didn't really make money, but I wasn't upset or anything about it like it wasn't a big deal for me to like to look at it like a profit and loss type of thing so that went on for quite a while because i just wanted to focus on on bringing people this event you know like i just wanted to make sure that we were doing the right thing and i wasn't selling out in terms of bringing in a sponsor or a a talent just because it would draw more people to the show and forget about the core integrities of why we're doing this. And it's for the people and telling stories of their cars. That's the basic goal. So we ran with that idea and we're still doing that today. What was, where, when was it when, you know, it was just full-time week fest? Full-time Weekfest came <clears throat> five years after we established Weekfest. So the first for the first for the first two two three years we were in Japantown, San Francisco, right? And then we outgrew that venue because <laughs> there's a lot of people in the underground parking garage, and we basically violated all the fire codes, and we had to get out of there. We had to um, move to a real event venue and that was fort mason the infamous fort mason events that happened for two years so after that even during that time we had kind of had to start really treating it like a business because there's so many moving parts there are so many transactions that you can't just be like oh you know just set this aside and, and worry about these responsibilities later you have to really pay attention to them on a day-to-day basis. So it became a business then. And that's when, during the Fort Mason years, so year four or five, that's when we started tapping into other cities as a tour. So we did uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, Honolulu, and Long Beach. 
And as the the tour started, that's when it was full time for me. Like there was nothing else that I could do um, besides Weekfest because it was a year round thing. Yeah, man, those Fort Mason days were crazy. Yeah, I mean, again, like I thought moving into Fort Mason would be enough of a capacity, but it wasn't. It was luckily like more people heard about the event and more people wanted to come and and, and see it for themselves. So I was very fortunate from that aspect is that people were believing in, in what we were doing and, and what we were producing. But eventually we we grew out that venue. And I know a lot of people say, oh, go back to Fort Mason. Because, you know, yeah, I, I would totally agree. It was a great space. It was a great atmosphere. I mean, I'd love to be there. I've tried, um, but they just don't want us back at all. Yeah, it was just unmanageable to what yeah. they're doing, correct? Yeah, like it wasn't... <clears throat> It wasn't something that they can handle in comparison to like uh, a convention center where, you know, you'll see like a ton of events bigger than ours holding up hundred thousands of people and they're, you know, they can work it. They can, they can handle it. But Fort Mason and in the, at the end is a very intimate space. It's also a federal space. So they're not going to have the capabilities to manage all those people and all that crowd. I wish we can, but I, I I drew up a proposal, everything, and I and I sent it to them, and they were just not interested. They said, "Hey, that looks really nice on paper." Yeah, it looks nice on paper, but never ever again. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, Weekfest has grown exponentially, and. You know, it continues to grow. Like, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing as it grows? Because, like, I mean, do you consider your baby a teenager now? Or I, I think he's in between. Yeah, <laughs> he's in that he's in that awkward stage where it's like you were cute as a baby, but you're not so cute at certain times. Mm-hmm. Like, just don't bother me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I say that because we do have challenges internally running a business and externally with uh, competition with you know understanding the new generation and, and the way they think and understanding that my core principles for the company is not always tapping into the trend um, understanding that there are these certain things that they come and go and we don't have to all necessarily always adapt to it to entertain our followers. So it's a challenge there. There's a challenge of always seeing a lot of imitators copying what we try to do, how we visually present ourselves or what we offer to our guests, to our exhibitors. There's that. And obviously, most recently, to current events, you know, just understanding the climate is changing in terms of how we look into public and health safety. So um, understanding that after this whole situation with the coronavirus, uh, mass gatherings might have to adjust and adapt. 
So there's a lot of different things that that are issues that that present itself, but I look at them more as challenges that we have to overcome and in order to sustain. Sure. I mean, yeah, because like the the venues that we operate in are always at about a hundred thousand mm-hmm. per feet. Yeah. Knowing that, like you know, basketball has been canceled pretty Mm -hmm. much and they're trying to figure out a solution Mm -hmm. i mean this is going to trickle all the way down to us is the solution smaller events you know i i don't i don't really know there isn't an unknown to be honest i mean you know us very well and you know that i like to do things where i look outside of the industry I typically I typically don't reference anything within our immediate market to do things. So really waiting on <clears throat> and just studying like how major sports leagues and, and bigger organizations handle the situation is going to help me determine what we should do as an event. I have thought about different ideas um, on how we can safeguard and put the public at ease when it comes to social gatherings and stuff like that. I don't, to be very honest, like I told myself this, like the day that I have to do like a online car show is the day that I won't do weakness mm-hmm. because that's not what we are. And yeah. I'm ready to accept that because I'm not going to just say, this is not adapting. This is my core product isn't that. And I'm not going to pretend that I am because I'm not about selling a product that I don't believe in. So, you know, it it just comes with time to understand where people are and we just have to hope for the best. But in the meantime, you know, just, you know, continuing the improvement of our brand didn't stop when this whole coronavirus thing hit. Like it's, it's a constant, you know, learning lesson in running a business, it's a constant development. So, you know, that in itself doesn't stop. I'm just more, for me, it's more about understanding that, you know, content and, and visuals is one of the most important things we can offer to our followers and understanding that we have to look in different, you know, industries to bring something unique to our exhibitors and bring a really different feel in terms of presentation to who we are in compared to our competitors. I just want to make sure that as a brand, we don't fall in line with the rest. And that's always been my thing. You know, it's always been trying to do more visually present ourselves in in a different way so that you don't feel like, oh, this is just another car show that we're going to. I want to make sure that this is an experience that has meaning to a lot of people that, you know, when you think of Weekfest, you can think of a specific story uh, of why you were there or, or what you saw there and things like that. <clears throat> so that, that continues to today. Yeah. Again, we'll just have to wait it out. That's the biggest thing right now. Time. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, like it just doesn't stop. Like I said, like I, I don't, you know, I, I don't have a set schedule per se because, you know, Weekfest is 
my main thing now. But you know, I when I have an idea, I work on it no matter what, no matter when. That's just a part of being a, a business owner, running a business. But most importantly, is is reminding myself that the core product is something that, and whatever features we try to adapt has to be genuine and has to be for the people and 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 bring trust into the brand. Without that, we aren't going to sustain whether or not you know the coronavirus changes us in terms of how we operate as an event. As long as we do the right thing, as long as we do things in a transparent way, I confidently feel like you know our followers will will stay with us and stay loyal to us no matter what. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been crazy. So we, I mean, we just gotta wait it out, see what twenty twenty brings. Different mandates, keep everybody safe. Yeah. Um, I, I always. Do you have any anything we might have missed? Hmm. I don't. I don't. I mean, it's. I don't really think so. Oh, you know what? Actually, I think we did miss something. Huh. I mean, I, I probably think that Japan is one of our best shows. Yeah. How did that bridge? How was that built? So what a lot of people don't know is it took us developing relationships in Japan for a good five, six years before we can confidently handle a week fest Japan. I started going to Japan on a personal and on a business basis for the shop, Week Sauce. We were out there and we had <clears throat> met all these different people from the industry in Japan. And got close to some of them, and it wasn't until year five or six of me regularly going there that it was pitched to me that they should we should do a week fest Japan. <clears throat> so, at the time, a lot of people had already you know from Japan had already known about our shop and about week fest in the states. A lot of them had actually tried to go to the Fort Mason show, right? But then. They couldn't even get in because we were over capacity. Oh wow! So imagine somebody flying from Japan to San Francisco for this mm-hmm. one sole purpose and not being able to go to our show. Did they fly to Japan knowing you and not get in? Or no. Why do you? No, no, no. Like fair? a lot of a lot of this was organic. Like a lot of this was like them coming to the either the Weekfest US shows or coming to the shop unknowingly, um, not knowing any of us, and we were just like strangers we were strangers you know getting to know each other and that's how it all developed and remember too at the time the language there was a huge language barrier because you know the translation game wasn't as strong back then Mm -hmm. and like you know now it's easy to go to japan it's super easy but Mm -hmm. at the time for somebody to come to the states or for us to go to japan there were a lot of hurdles and obstacles that we had to figure out so they were coming, yeah, they were coming unknowingly, not knowing what to do, not really knowing the environment. But we we developed relationships and then we ended up <clears throat> going out to Japan. And that's how that all started. So 
But it, it took a while because that's how the way things are in Japan is that they have to really build that trust. And that trust doesn't come overnight or over a month or over a year. It really took us a lot of time to, to prove who we are and develop these relationships to the point where we felt like, okay, now is the time to really do this international event. And yeah, I mean, I would agree that, you know, <clears throat> Japan is one of our strongest showcase. It definitely is an opportunity for me to find a new inspiration when we're out there and kind of seeing things with a different view with a new eye. So yeah, Japan <clears throat> now in its sixth year this year is one of our, one of the best, one of the top threes, I would say, of WeQuest tours. So, okay, so if you had to rate them, mm-hmm. what would be your top three? No particular order. No particular order. Um, if we're counting the quality of the cars, the energy. Yes. Um, you know, and how much effort is involved in terms of, you know, planning the show and, and seeing the final product and things like that. I would say San Jose. Japan and LA. Then there's a there is an honorable mention of Seattle. Mm. Our boy David is gonna want us to say New York, but we go to New York for him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So but you know, San Jose, when I when I say San Jose, that's the Bay Area. That's home. Yeah. You know, I live in Orange County now, but no matter what, that's the home show. And I put the most care and the most attention to that show because that's how everything was born. That's how this all started. This is, that's where, you know, I was given an opportunity. And that's where, in my personal opinion, where the WeekFest community, you know, spread and started. <clears throat> so... In terms of energy, I mean, you see it at the Week San Jose. It's like we do a, things a little differently at that show compared to some of our tour events. San Jose have... uh, crosses through all genres. I feel like as far yeah. as like attendees and everything. Mm-hmm. But I, I would like to say Austin or Texas always mm-hmm. show major love. Yeah, I mean. That, that's just, you know, like doing this tour with WeekFest, like, you know, we definitely have an opportunity to see how people from different regions behave and how their communities are different than ours, even though we're a part of this bigger genre. Texas definitely has a very homey, a very positive feel when it comes to <clears throat> interaction with the followers. San Jose is just a huge like to me it looks like a huge like celebration yeah and everybody is there whether you you know like obviously car is the main thing but you know you see the way we present ourselves and and our merchandise you know there's a lot of different subcultures that are instilled into those things so i feel like with san jose it's just a melting pot of a little bit of everything but still understanding that you know cars is still the main topic it's still the centerpiece but we are just 
you know, installing different visualizations and different presentations and different way we're doing things to kind of highlight the main value here. So that's what San Jose is. With Seattle, it's a lot of like true enthusiasts. I mean, they, it's almost like there is this like untapped market that, that hasn't been stained by any of the negative things. And that's Seattle, that specific Northwest. With LA, it's, it's almost like San Jose, as you already know. The, call, the quality of the cars are great. It's one of our, in terms of quality of the cars, it's probably one of our top twos. There's just a lot of great builds in Southern California, and we can't deny that in terms of the top builds, and that's Japan. And it's just because it's just their way of life. It's just their attention to detail and how they harness this idea that, you know, if you have this project or this purpose, you see it through with a lot of, you know, with the utmost care and, and you see that reflect on, on the builds out there. Yeah, for sure. And also I think the bridge and the gap between like Canada is Mm -hmm. also pretty key too, you know? Yeah. I mean, having the show in Seattle gives us the opportunity to uh, welcome exhibitors from Vancouver and stuff like that. So in a way it's funny because, you know, like I said, I was from Vancouver. I lived there for quite some time. So Seattle, the Seattle show holds a little bit of a connection to me and just to see like everything coming in full circle. Right. So everything that I'm doing is, it's still related to things that I've done in the past. All right. I got a couple just questions, random questions. This is kind of like a rapid fire part of the Mm -hmm. interview. How do you explain to your family, like like relatives, (laughs) the in-laws, what you do? This one was tough because I (laughs) I I didn't so I stopped going to college, right? As as we talked about earlier. When I told them that I run my own business now without going to specifics, right? I just said very general things because, you know, you have to understand like older Asian, you know, people that might not understand the full spectrum of what you're doing. You just have to simplify things, right? You just have to, you know, don't, don't try to make it too complicated because they're just going to ask a whole bunch of questions and it's, it's never going to work in your favor. So I just said, oh, I do car events now. And at first they were very, you know, skeptical. I think there is still a little bit of a doubt in that because I, my relatives all basically went to really good colleges, Ivy League schools. They all have, you know, professional careers. Whereas like, here comes a dark horse that, you know, decided to not finish school and do his own thing. So in a way they kind of thought, you know, you're, not doing things you're basically doing things out of the system out of the norm and it was hard for me to say i run my own business because anybody can run their own business it's how successful is that business right right? so is it putting food on the table is it putting a roof over your head and i think that was their main concern but 
I think knowing that I've been doing this for 12 years now, it's been over a decade. So they definitely have some, they've eased up a little, a lot more, I would say, but it was tough. It was just telling them, Hey, I'm running my own business. It's a car event. This is what I do. And no more questions. Like, <laughs> just, just let me run with it. Like, you know, like it, it's, it's like, you can't force me into doing something I don't want to do. Right. So understand that, you know, this is my choice and I will live with the consequences and reap the rewards if there is. Definitely. Number two, what do you think's next for you? I personally want to get into more, like I want to learn more about brand development outside of WeekFest. I really have taken interest into highlighting the visualizations of our brand. And I want to be a part of another organization or another cause that is doing so in a bigger level. I understand that I don't have all the tools, but I'm willing to learn and be a part of something new. Not saying that I'm not going to do WeekFest anymore, but, you know, I've oftentimes feel like, you know, all these things that I've learned from from business, from WeekFest, I can apply to other industries. And, you know, I want to be a part of, you know, different, different movements, different projects and things like that. So I want to be open to, to the opportunity, but most, most, most importantly, I just want to make sure that I keep on applying myself and have this attitude that I can keep on learning and adapting. Nice. All right, top three movies ever. Ah, this is easy. So it's uh, <clears throat> no, no one, no one, not in particular order, or what? Not in particular order. Okay. Godfather two. Casino, two? Goodfellas, yeah, two. You know why two? Two is when two yeah, is when think- yeah. Well, because two is when you saw the background of of Vito, you know, as a child. And adapting from his, you know, from his um, teenagers to him becoming a Don, right? So remember, Robert De Niro played a young Vito, right? And I, I think that it's because that I'm not saying like it's a com- direct comparison, but you know, just learning, just seeing like somebody adapting to a new to a new country and figuring out things on his own and, you know, and just like, you know, just like learning lessons, right? Just like, you know, there's things that you can relate to, even though they're not like a hundred percent the same. You saw a lot of yourself. I didn't see myself as a, uh, as Vito, but you know, it was just interesting. And then yeah, Casino and, and uh, Goodfellas. You Basically know, all Robert De Niro. You know, it's like a, a next project of mine. Because I feel uh-huh. like I have another month or so. Uh-huh. Well, there's a couple of things. Two, one is to like sharpen the 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 Photoshop illustration. Yeah. Everything, right? Yeah, yeah. To really take a class, like I've been looking at UC Berkeley has a really good like extension that you could do on mm-hmm. the internet. But the thing, the second thing that I want to do is I want to watch movies with my friends. And then talk about them because, like, I do not agree with your Godfather 2 thing. <laughs> but 
to each its own, though, right? Yeah. Uh, so, like, we'll have you on another one, and we'll watch Godfather 2. Actually, that's going like to be like a four-hour special. I probably have time to watch all three of them. <laughs> But, um, no, no, number three is just bullshit. Yeah. Number that's three is cash grab. Yeah, that's the just to complete it. So you have could sell yeah. a box set of yeah. three. You know, <clears throat> so Casino, Godfather Two, mm-hmm. the other one. Uh, Goodfellas. What's number? What's the close four? <sighs> Damn, I don't even know. Close four. I mean, I will tell you what's a good movie recently. What's a good movie recently? I mean, everybody knows this, but it's Parasite. Yeah, it's an amazing movie. Yeah, I started watching it again off of your uh, Hulu account. <laughs> oh, everybody has that, huh? Yeah. No, I kept your Hulu password. Chill, chill. But uh, you know why I think you like that movie? Huh? Because of the, of the design in it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you know me, like I like things minimalistic, simple, clean. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, and you can see that like the like the the way they the visuals in that movie is just like just clean. Everything is just clean. Everything's very, you know, well thought of. But I basically started to like when I watched it for the second time, I started really dissecting things that, you know, people were saying about how the producer kind of made the movie and it made me realize that you know like just looking at it it amazed it amazed me because at the first at the first time when i watched it i didn't realize some of these things but watching it again i noticed i noticed all these different little things that you know drew comparisons to you know this family that was that had this you know high position in society versus this family on you know as, as bottom feeders but you know Looking at those details really intrigued me because it's kind of like, you know, us running a business. It's like we install little details and, and things that most people might not notice, but it only takes that one person to do so. And, you know, for me, I, I'm happy with it. Make sure. As long it is, as, right? Yeah. Like uh, as long as somebody, you know, doesn't matter one or a hundred, if, it, if it's just that one, I mean, as long as he understands it, great. You know, at least. I know I'm doing something that translates into people's minds and, and they understand what we're doing because I feel, I feel like that's, that's just a lot of the things that we do visually, you know, a lot of people might not understand or might not take a liking to uh, because it's out of their norm. But, you know, if, if one or two of those guys appreciate it, I mean, that's, that's all that matters to me. You know, that, that keeps me running. And we should definitely try to go to that house. What the the house in Korea? Yeah. What that's a thing? Like that's a thing that you can go to? I don't know, but I mean, why why couldn't oh. find it and go to it? Yeah. Cool. Should shoot a bunch of fucking shirts and like just <laughs> everything just at that house, and then whoever understands it. But I'm yeah. sure those spots are are well. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's what we do, right? Like we do a lot of things that. Like the, the visuals of the brand is represented by the things that we take a personal keen interest on, um, believing the fact that what we like can transform into a bigger message. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, and 
for me, it's always going to be like that. At the same time, balancing the fact that we do have to speak a language in which the general public understands, but also not forgetting the core integrity of our work. But yeah, that's if we can find that house, I, I'd love to go. No, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to find that house. But yeah, man, I mean, it's been good talking to you, hearing about everything. Uh, I really wish that we could have showed, and we, we maybe still can, you know, show everybody that what we have for 2020. Yeah, definitely a lot of merchandise for Weekfest because we we put a lot of thought into this one, I feel like. As, as we, I saw you in March, right? The last time you saw me was like right before we went to went into lockdown. Yeah, like it was like a week after. Like I went to Palm yeah. Spring or came to LA. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was right before that lockdown. Man, do you? If I didn't get that trip in, I think I, I would have been going crazy. But that's kind of held me over. But I mean, we had a great conversation that day. Um, so we're just going to have to share it digitally, really. Yeah, I mean, we we have a lot of ideas and we have a lot of um, merchandise that I would like to push out. But right now, you know, there there is this restriction in doing so. But we're going to try to do our best to line everything up and let the people see what, what, we, what we've been working with. The other thing, too, is... You know, for me, just working on these with these event venues to figure out what our uh, next course of action is in some of our events. So hopefully we can still do most of these events in 2020. Oh, yeah. If you died tomorrow, this is the closing question. If you died tomorrow, what would you want to be remembered for? I want people to say that I always stuck to my word and that I will always follow my personal integrity to the core. I want people to know that I was genuine about the way I carry myself and that I cared about the people in my closest circle the most. You know me, I don't I don't like to just pretend to be somebody that I'm not just for the sake of being liked. So sometimes I might come off as quiet and not approachable, but I think it's just because, you know, I'm just trying to be really genuine about who I am and how I carry myself. And, you know, like if I care about you, if we're close, then you would definitely know and you would hear from me. So I just want the people that are closest to me to know and understand that's how I am and how I was. Nice. That's that's a really good one. Yeah. Thanks for being a sub in my wedding. And hopefully, uh, hopefully that uh, <laughs> hopefully that's gonna happen still. Sure. Hey man, if it doesn't, we'll figure it out. But yeah, make the team. Some celebrate make the squad. But yeah, thanks for all the words. I think there's a really great message that hopefully everybody walks away with. Mm-hmm. And yeah, man. Peace. Thanks for having me and um, stay safe, everybody. <laughs>